Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Today, my guest is Laura Muka, who is a writer, poet, and performer. She is also the author of the just-published book, Love Understood, Who, How, and Why We Love. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So, songwriters and poets have devoted quite a bit of time to this um, subject of love. And you decided to talk to people from eight to 95 in more than 40 countries. So to start, I'm curious what possessed you to take on the topic of love? (laughs) And what did you learn that was new that we don't know? Um, it's a very good question. And I also like the way you put it, like, what possessed you? I do not know. I do not think I really knew how much work it was going to be when I started. Otherwise, I do not think I would have signed up for it. Um, so I grew up with my mum and grandparents. And my grandfather, who I call dad, died when I was 11. So I was left with these, like, totally brilliant, um, exceptional creative, wonderful, hardworking women, but no romantic relationship to observe. So I didn't understand how they worked. And from quite a young age, I would interrogate people about it. So, for example, um, I'd go around to my friend's house as a teenager and say to their parents, do you ever get um, tempted to divorce? Or do you ever think about cheating? Or how do you you share all your money? You'd ask these questions of your (laughs) your friend's parents. I love it. I did not understand. I just did not understand how it worked. Anyway, I carried on for a long time. It became a joke. Everyone would be like, here she goes again. And then um, I was in Argentina and I spoke to a guy who was 95 and he was a farmer and he'd been married for 75 years. And it was in Spanish, middle of nowhere. And I suddenly thought, do you know what? I should probably document this. I think this might, you know, other people might benefit from hearing what all these people are saying. So I bought a little recorder and I started recording the interviews and then I did um, three to 400. I stopped counting at 300 um, across 40 countries. And what was interesting was that the interviews were brilliant. Really, actually, most, almost all of them were incredibly honest. Um, I think there was something about speaking to a stranger and knowing that I would protect their anonymity and that I was not being judgmental, or at least I was being as unjudgmental as possible in talking to them. Um, But there's, I think, an important part that research has to play in this because sometimes we don't understand what we're doing or what other people are doing or we, our lives and our stories raise important questions and that's when the research came in really helpful to try and answer those questions like why do people cheat or should you stay in a relationship for the children or... Like, what, what are there different types of love? What are they? And are these questions that arose from the people you interviewed themselves? Yes. Yeah. So most of the time they came from them, although I did begin with some questions of my own, but they usually came up anyway. So, for example, a lady I interviewed in Portugal, her husband had cheated on her for seven years with four people at the same time. So for seven years, he had been having five relationships and she cried in the interview and said I'm like I'm really sorry I haven't talked about this for eight years I just wonder whether I did something wrong like was it my fault that he did this and so I decided to look into 
you know, why infidelity happens and whether she was to blame. Um, and another thing that um, came up again in an interview is a guy uh, from Sri Lanka who, who um, his wife died leaving him with three children under 12 and he decided not to remarry because he wanted to focus on his children. And so I wanted to look at, you know, should you stay alone? Like, what does the research say? Is it good to get in a new relationship? And if so, when? And, um, like, is there such a thing as a bad time to get in a new relationship? And, you know, like, there were obviously uh, some more optimistic questions. I've just given you two really depressing ones. Um, But, yeah, lots of questions that came up from the interviews. And to answer these questions, how did you go about doing that? I mean, the, these are these are huge questions, and I'm and and I hope that you will tell us what answers you came up with because those are two that people certainly want to know about. But how do you answer big questions like that? Well, so I I think it's a really I like the way you asked that because honestly, I definitely had that thought at home on my own, at my desk, at like two in the morning, just thinking, how am I going to answer that? Oh my god! Um, so what I did was. Uh, so I used to be a lawyer, and I feel like that being a lawyer really um, developed my tolerance for reading huge amounts. So I would read vast, vast, vast amounts. And so I, I essentially would delve into the divorce literature, and I'd find out who the main academic players were, and then binge read everything I could get my hands on. And then I would go to the British Library, which is a massive library in London that has um, phenomenal access to basically everything. And they have amazing research desks. And then I would sit there for ages with the people at research desk going, OK, I need to know. <laughs> uh, let's look up the search terms. Divorce and children and, you know, whatever. And then once I got further down the line um, and I had read huge amounts, I had an idea of um, what the answer was. And then I... And then I would run it by academics. So because I tried to look at quite a lot, so, you know, what you should look for in a partner, but also um, what, uh, what, how did your upbringing impact relationships, but also what about bereavement, but also what about divorce, but also what about conflict? There were, I had to get quite a lot of academics involved to kind of review each chapter because no one academic could talk about everything because academics are specialised. And did they um, agree? So, yeah, yeah, it was good. It was at most of the time they totally agreed um, with with what I'd written or um, my my theories, and sometimes they pointed me to other stuff. And but actually, I kind of wish I'd done that earlier because I definitely agonised on my own for a really long time. Whereas in law, what would happen is I would do some research, I'd write something, and then I'd run it past a senior, you know. Whereas and it's nice running it past someone else and talking about it, whereas writing can be very isolated. So I did quite a lot just on my own thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if I had a supervisor to talk to about this? <laughs> um, but now I've, I kind of have learned from that, and I'm doing some nonfiction for children and adults, and now I always make sure I have like some sort of supervisor or that I get in... I, that I, I, I now kind of involve academics who can look at very niche areas earlier on because there was definitely a lot of pain (laughs) just binge reading on my own in the dark (laughs) yeah so you raised three really interesting questions and I'm sure the listeners want to know what you came up with as the answer so question number one what should you look for in a partner Mm, good question so 
One thing that, um, so there's there's different approaches to answering this question. One is to look at what other people around the world look for. And uh, one of my favorite studies is the International Mate Selection Project. And that looked at 10,047 people across 37 countries on six continents. And people across all backgrounds and cultures said that what they thought was the most important thing in a partner was kindness and understanding. And I think it's just so life-affirming, but also... One of the things that, you know, if you stop and think about it, you probably would say, you know what, yeah, that's obviously right, but it's so easy to forget. And I've done a lot of events and talked about love a lot, and I've quite regularly had people come up to me and say, do you know what, I actually, I overlooked kindness as being really important, or I married someone because they were wealthy and actually no amount of money is worth a lack of kindness. Or um, one lady I interviewed said, that her girlfriend was kinder to her cat than she was to her. Um, So I think that uh, kindness is really important. And there were lots of other things that came up, like health or exciting personality, humor. Um, But I think, ultimately, the, the early stages of lust or romantic love can sometimes be beyond your control. It's about, you know, chemical reactions, basically, like your body gearing you up. Uh, to reproduce, or at least that's what evolutionary psychologists have to say, although they can't really explain LGBT relationships. Um, but I think that the kind of relationship, that, that the kind of love you see in long-term relationships, that's a choice, and that is when kindness comes in, and that's when like sharing important values with each other is really important. So one way of answering that question is to look at what other people have gone for, but another way of looking at it is to think... Um, about who you want to be because there's some amazing research that suggests that who you get together with will really impact who you become. So the Seattle Longitudinal Study followed people for decades and it found that couples that stayed together became more similar over time, over 14 and 35 years. They became more similar in intelligence or intellectual ability, vocabulary and happiness. So I think... You know, it's something that philosophers have commented on. So Aristotle says, um, if you want to be a good person, it's going to be a hell of a lot easier if you are surrounded by good people or if you have a close relationship with someone who is a good person. So part of that is, you know, who is it that you want to be, not just who do you want to be with? Um, And then finally, I think there's also a lot of stuff that we kind of just absorb, like cultural things that we internalize without really realizing it um so a lot of people that i interviewed that were gay for example kind of played at being straight partly because it was what they thought they should do or what culture expected of them you know um and there are loads of examples of that uh, in 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 all sorts of contexts so i think what you should go for in a partner is also to kind of really to figure out what is important to you not what what you might think might be important because your dad kind of, you know, said that over and over again and you grew up with that. Your dad might be right, but he might not. So you have to figure it out for yourself. Hmm. Okay. And then the second question was, why do people cheat? Oh, it's such a good question. <laughs> so there's some amazing research on this. Uh, basically, researchers went up to people that cheated and said, so... Why did you cheat? <laughs> and they said things like, you know, career advancement, <laughs> fun, a sense of conquest and power to explore my sexuality. And I think 
all of those are valid reasons, but it also presumes that people know why they have cheated and people don't always know why they have cheated. So sometimes it's like dark, deep, subconscious stuff that drives us to do the things that we do. And so then after the event, a researcher comes along and goes, why did you do it? And you have to kind of scrabble around for a reason when actually you don't necessarily have any idea. Um, so Was that true of the majority of people that they didn't really know why? No, no. So people would give a reason, but the, the, like a lot of psychoanalysts would say, well, you know what, maybe that reason isn't the real reason. Um, so there's a psychoanalyst called Eric Fromm who in the context of arguing – so, like, research suggests that money is the most common reason for arguing in first marriages and children isn't the most common reason in second marriages. And, like, money and chores are other very common arguments. But um, psychoanalyst Eric Fromm would say, is that really what the argument's about? Or is it, let's say, if your parents, if you're arguing about chores, is that because actually your parents didn't work as a team and your partner not doing the dishes reminds you of, a massive inequality in your relationship or um, does the fact that uh, does mo- is money actually more about security, you know? Um, so I think that sometimes if you've been someone who lives a, a life where you always do what's expected and you always achieve and you're always the good person, you know, sometimes you don't want to be the good person anymore and you've lived like that for whatever reason and you want to risk it and what like how how could you up the stakes more than risk you know your family if you love them you know i think um infidelity can be a very um a very potent rebellion against something that might have nothing to do with the relationship there's also some amazing research where 56 percent of men i think and 34 percent of women who had cheated rated their relationships as either happy or very happy so before or after not, they cheated yeah well, <laughs> <that was> after. <laughs> good question um so i think it's a really it's a really sticky subject but it's not it's not a case that I, quite a few people kind of said to me in the interviews well if someone cheats it means the relationship's not right and i don't agree it may not have anything to do with the relationship yeah. with the person yeah hmm one other question which I think um, people would want to know and, and ask themselves often, which is, what is the secret or key to a happy relationship? Not necessarily a long-lasting one, but a happy one. What's interesting about this is that relationship researchers have tended to focus on the negative aspects of relationships. So there's a huge amount of research on arguing or divorce, <laughs> <laughs> really uplifting topics like that. Um, but when it comes to how, like, what are the positive strategies that the, the research is thinner on the ground, there is some, but if you compare it by volume, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, there is some burgeoning research on the importance of forgiveness and gratitude, for example. Um, and I think that that's, like, hugely, hugely important I also think that expectations can be, um, unrealistic expectations can be hugely damaging. So there was a lot of research uh, into this where they found that people who had 
unrealistic expectations of their partner were less likely to be happy in the relationship, less likely to see a therapist, um, more likely to imagine that the answer was simply a case of finding someone else um, and less committed. So it, it makes perfect sense. Like, let's say you and I are in a relationship and you are, if we, like, really oversimplifying. This is obviously not how relationships work, but let's imagine that you are a 7 out of 10 and our relationship is a 7 out of 10 and the national average is 5 out of 10, then I should be really thankful and I've done really well. But if I imagine that 12 out of 10 is possible, then you and our relationship will never do very well. Mm. And that's how unrealistic expectations can work. But and a lot of, of the, like, I'm sorry, a lot of those unrealistic expectations are created by the culture, right? And by yeah. some of the stories that we see, for example, in the movies and television, which tell us what we should expect or what relationships yeah. are supposed to be like. How do you yeah. manage those expectations or well, come to a realistic understanding of what a relationship is about? Well, I think one person that I interviewed in Scandinavia was amazing. And she said, um, she was really young and just so insightful and said, you know what, I think there are different types of expectations. There's like a conscious expectation and a subconscious expectation. And it's the subconscious expectation that's quite dangerous. So if you're a child, and there's research on this in the States that like children, 99% of children had seen, you know, some pretty significant um, films aimed at the children's market, including, for example, Disney films. They'd seen them, and not only had they seen them, they'd seen them on repeat. 85% had seen them on repeat. And then other research has found, so when sociologists looked at films that grossed, I think it was $100 million or more dollars between 1990 and 2005, aimed um, at a general audience, they found that 75% involved romantic love as a primary or secondary plot. And only 10% didn't have love at all. And of those that had love as a primary or secondary plot, most featured love as a fall in love at first sight. Um, doesn't just heal the couple, it fixes the entire world they live in. <laughs> and also, like, the conclusion of the film is that they get married with some, like, bonkers, extravagant ballroom affair with fireworks and butterflies. And there's nothing about, you know commitment or how they get a bit tired later on or how they uh, find you know it's logistically exhausting having children or they get tempted or you know they, so, the passion calms down it's not about that it's almost like the achievement is getting married rather than the achievement is making the relationship work beyond that um, and I, I think that that's really unhelpful because that is something that you if you watch it on repeat as a child and if it's being kind of echoed everywhere you look at then it's something you you kind of absorb without even realizing and there's this amazing academic called Paul Hollander who um normally works specifically on communist politics and for some reason he decided to write a book about love and he compared romantic love to communist propaganda by basically saying like, look at everything there is. It's just every perfume advert features two very young people who are desperately in love, you know? Like, there's no there's no um, two people, a bit grumpy, arguing over who's doing the dishes and then buying each other a bottle of perfume. 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It seems that most love stories end right at the beginning, right? Yes, (laughs) yes, exactly. And but also, it's not just a cultural thing. I think it's also um, it's also something that's impacted by our upbringings. So it's easy. There's a an amazing area of research called attachment theory, which is one of the most researched areas in psychology. And the basic premise is that we're not all the same when it comes to relationships. So if I grow up uh, with a parent or caregiver um, who is really responsive and comforting when I'm stressed out and um, basically makes me feel loved and safe and secure, then I understand that romantic relationships are safe and they are a... um, I I am worthy of love, people can be relied upon, you know, I have control over my environment, then I have developed what they call a secure attachment, and that is true of about 58% of the population based on a review of more than 200 studies. And then basically relationships come quite easily to me. But if I don't get that for whatever reason, I can develop one of the insecure attachment patterns. And one of those is what, there's lots of different names for it, but one name is avoidant attachment. And that involves being fiercely independent, disconnecting from emotions, um, being quite picky and breaking up with people or finding faults in them. And avoidant attachment um, can involve idealization. So this whole idea of unrealistic expectations, that might be because you've been, you've had, you know, films shoved down your throat and rom-coms and perfume adverts, God knows what else. But it might also be because for whatever reason you have an avoidant attachment pattern, which is true of 23% of the population. And idealizing relationships is a way of avoiding commitment. So, you know, like my um, you are a 7 out of 10 example. Um, if, I, if, if I always think that 12 is available, then that gives me a brilliant way of thinking that no one and no relationship is good enough, which is a brilliant way of me staying on my own, which is ultimately what attachment theorists argue, what an avoidant person is trying to achieve. So I think there's cultural stuff, but there's also a lot of personal stuff that gets mixed in with all of that. Mm. You have a really interesting history. You you were a lawyer um, and you went through a kind of, a pretty serious life change. Could you talk about that and how that has led you to this new path that you're on and and, and maybe motivated this research as well? Yeah. Um, so I used to be a lawyer at a brilliant law firm, um, international, lots of offices in America. And I worked for wonderful people and I loved my job. And, um, and then I was hit by a car when I was 29. Um, I was walking across the road and a taxi driver hit me and I went flying. And then the passenger got out of the car and said, can we keep going? I'm late for my flight. Um, and oh my goodness. everyone around me stopped <laughs> from going on. Um, and then... I remember in the ambulance asking the ambulance driver if it was reasonable for me to be crying. And then I was bed-bound, virtually bed-bound, like with occasional two-minute trips to a supermarket or whatever, um, for two years. And uh, I had cardiac arrest, and that led to the diagnosis of this long-term condition I have. And I think um, what was really phenomenally useful in all of that, it was obviously horrendous. totally horrendous um like more horrendous than i could probably ever explain actually but what was brilliant about it was um that i learned a hell of a lot about myself what i care about so i learned a lot about my weaknesses 
and my strengths and I think my like my personal identity up until that point was all sorts like wrapped up in achievement you know like being a lawyer and achieving being clever being positive energetic and I wasn't any of those things I was like a vegetable like a vegetable that had to lie in the dark and then um as I kind of explored who I was if I couldn't be any of the things that I thought I was I kind of came to the conclusion that actually the most important thing is kindness and it's really transformed everything it's transformed the way that I relate to people so it's transformed interviews it's transformed um it's transformed everything I spent so much time in hospital with so many people and just kind of reached this conclusion that feels a bit obvious to say but was really profound for me which is that we're all humans we all have bodies that will fail and some humans their bodies haven't failed yet but they will um and and that's and we're all vulnerable even though some like to pretend they're not and that um that was quite liberating for me and so i think um all of that made me much less scared and much more determined to use whatever of my life i had left to do to doing things that I believed would make a positive difference. Um, and so that's why I did this book at an, a rate of about 80 pence per hour, which is like maybe $1 an hour. <laughs> Whereas as a lawyer, I made way more than that. <laughs> what do you want people to take away from the book or to understand about love that perhaps they might not have understood before? Uh, good question. Um I think that love is the sort of love that makes relationships last is hard work and it's a skill. I don't mean it should be such hard work that it's, you know, there's no joy in it, but that there is an element of hard work and the extent to which there is hard work involved will depend on you. You know, if you have, for example, an avoidant attachment pattern, it will be more work for you than it, it will be for someone who has a secure attachment pattern. Um, and so if, if the way that you feel about relationships might have more to say about you than it does about the other person, although it is always a, a kind of interaction between two people, that said, um, you obviously want to choose wisely because it doesn't matter how much work you do on yourself. If you're in a relationship with someone who's very abusive, that that personal work isn't going to fix it, you know. Um, and I also think the way that love is represented generally in popular media is um, is incorrect. And I don't think it's helping us. And I don't think it's helping younger people. And I think there's a need... Um, for more honest conversations and more evidence-based conversations about relationships. Why do we spend so long studying things at school that have much less to do with our actual happiness than how to have healthy relationships? I have been talking today to Laura Muka, who is a writer, poet, and performer. She is the author of the just-published book, Love Understood, Who, How, and Why We Love. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a real treat. I am Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Yeah.